1: In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.
2: This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me coming to you live on tape. From New York City, where it's very cold and it's streaming week, so we're going to move via the telephone and Skype and talk with Emily Vanderwerf. Vox is... What are, what's, your, what's your title, Emily? Are you chief critic? Are you a TV critic? Person who knows the most about TV?
3: I am the critic at large at Vox.com.
2: So. That is an awesome
3: title. I know. I fought for it. Thank you. Th- thank you
2: for coming on. Disney Plus rolled out this week. Apple TV Plus rolled out last week. This is good for you since you're in the business of reviewing TV shows and other content. A lot of it has come your way, our way. Um, A lot of people have opinions. We want to hear your opinions. In general, what is the takeaway? We're about two weeks into sort of the streaming wars kicking off about the the deluge of content that has come our way and is
3: coming our way. Most of it's not that good. Like, some of it's fine. And I think there's been one actually like, I don't want to say really good show. It has a lot of problems, but I think one show I will probably continue to watch in season two, and that's uh, Apple TV Plus' Dickinson.
2: We'll get to the the, the reviews of the specific shows in a second, but you've got Apple, which is spending billions of dollars to get into content, and they brought in these guys from Sony um, who have made really good shows in the past, or at least supervised people who have made really good shows in the past. You've got Disney, which has been in entertainment for 100 years. Everyone's been heading towards this moment for years and years. A lot of attention and money spent here. Are you surprised that it comes out this flat?
3: No, not at all. I always think back to something the great director, Steven Soderbergh, said to me uh, a couple years ago when he was promoting the girlfriend experience on Stars, And he was talking about how he believes really firmly that in any given year, there are maybe 10 great movies, like that's your ceiling. So however many movies are made, he thinks that there are maybe 10 of them that are genuinely great. So when you make the pool larger, you don't make stuff better. You just make it harder to find what's great. And I I actually didn't agree with him at the time. I thought when you make the pool larger, you expand the categories of everything. But the streaming era is sort of proving me wrong because At a certain point, creative people who actually make these things get stretched really thin, you dilute the pool of talent, you sort of dilute the pool of viewers, too. Like I think one of the things that's always made TV great is it's in this weird feedback loop with the viewership, and that is just now... Increasingly non-existent.
2: This doesn't augur well for next year when we when HBO Max launches with a bunch of new stuff, and Peacock's going to come out, and I don't know, maybe maybe uh, there's a random streaming service coming out we we have yet to hear. <laughs> oh, Quibi, sorry. In um, your argument, there's a finite number of people, and even though you're por- if giving them billions of dollars collectively, they're not going to make. Uh, that many more great shows.
3: Right. For as long as I've lived in Los Angeles, I've had multiple people, I've known multiple people who want to write for TV and like they've always been like standing on the out- on the outside of the industry sort of looking in and and, you know, with plaintive eyes like the little match girl and now they're all just getting jobs. Like everybody's getting hired because there's so much stuff in production and like I'm happy for my friends. I think they're all great writers. I think they'll all do great work but like, the door is just open now in a way it hasn't. I don't know,
2: Emily. You sound like an elitist who's saying some people should leave town and they should, they should go back <laughs> and get jobs in marketing or whatever else they do before they oh, before God. they go to Hollywood.
3: Please don't get jobs in marketing. Please come and get a job in television writing. It's at least honest work. So now I've offended all my PR friends.
2: Yeah. Hopefully they won't listen. Well, a couple of them are listening, I think, for sure. Uh before we get to the specific shows, um, you have a very specific point of view. But my sense is on, on the Apple TV stuff, uh, most people sort of shared your views. They're underwhelmed with those shows. We're one day into the Disney Plus release. What's your sense of the reaction to The Mandalorian and the other stuff Disney's rolled out
3: uh, Mandal- beyond the world of Emily? I always sort of feel weird clarifying a reaction to a show like the mandalorian that's clearly building something based on one episode but it feels to me like it's pretty evenly split between people who are like yes this is the star wars i i wanted and people who are like that's it that's what you spent all that money on so the disney slate really the thing with disney plus is people want to talk about the original shows but what i saw people talking about yesterday was all the catalog stuff and like that to me i i spent a lot of time clicking around on it that to me is what's fun about disney plus is there's all this stuff on there that is you know either new to streaming or has been hard to find on streaming or you know some of it the marvel stuff has been on netflix for ages and is now here but like that's what's fun about disney plus is sort of like if you are a disney fan and i guess like, i vaguely am like figuring out, like, like seeing all of this stuff in the same place at the same time is, I think, really fun to look at. And, and that's the chief appeal of Disney Plus to me, and it's one that Apple TV Plus just can't recapture.
2: Right, and also, and, and there's a different strategy, right? Disney is, here's some new stuff plus pretty much everything we've made over the last hundred years or so, roughly give or take, whereas Apple TV Plus is, here's some stuff we've made, and then that's it. Uh, <laughs> and their, their idea is, By the way, once you're here, you're going to go buy HBO and buy Showtime, et cetera, and maybe that'll work. Um, And then over time, they're going to build a catalog, but they're two very different approaches. And as an aside, I'm very excited to show my son's, uh, I think it's called Gus. It's definitely about Gus. Yes, yes, yes. I always thought it was a horse, but he's a mule who can kick uh, field goals. And I seem to have watched that like every year in grade school. And I I was just watching a a clip of it yesterday. I forgot Ed Asner is in it, which is also awesome. Ed Asner and a mule. And Don Knotts. And Don Knotts. It's great. Uh, we will, we'll go into that. So, leaving aside my review of Gus, let's let's talk about Mandalorian. You've seen it. I've seen it. My eleven year old son has seen it. I'll give you Ben's review in a minute, but let's hear yours first.
3: Uh, I thought it was deeply fine. Like I, I didn't have significant problems with it beyond the fact that like the characters are very flat. But it's the first episode of a TV show, so that happens sometimes. The atmosphere. It's a of it, big
2: budget Star Wars series that I think if you're a normal person, you'll say, oh, that's that guy, is that Boba Fett? <laughs> yeah. But it's not Boba Fett, right? It's a, it's a Mandalorian, which I guess is what Boba Fett used to be. Yeah. Otherwise.
3: Yeah, It's I don't know enough Star Wars lore to give you the whole in and okay. out. But yeah, it's like somebody who is what Boba Fett is, basic, or was before Boba Fett died. And he's played by Pedro Pascal, who's one of the most charismatic and handsome actors alive, and he's been hidden behind a mask, and like... I don't quite understand the the reason to cast Pedro Pascal if you want someone to play a part behind a mask, but here we are.
2: It'd be like having Harrison Ford
3: yeah. in a mask. Yeah, exactly. In 1977. Exactly. He's yeah. got great, it's got great atmosphere, the show. Like, there's really great, they put all the money they spent on it on screen. Supposedly it's $15 million an episode, and you can really see that. But like, the story is kind of slack, it lags. The pacing is maybe not the best I'm hopeful that things pick up now that we've sort of established what the premise of the story seems to be at the very end of the, the first episode. But And I'm not going to spoil it because it's apparently a very big reveal that people will want to come into uh, unspoiled. I myself was like, okay, sure, fine. But uh, yeah, it, it, it has some good stuff in it. It has some... Boring stuff in it. It's mostly just another TV show. And I I don't know that people are going to be like paying for Disney Plus for The Mandalorian. I hope not. But if they are. I can't imagine them not being a little bit like, that was it?
2: Yeah, I I think if you're a Star Wars head, then you will like it, right? And there's a big chunk of people who like all things Star Wars. And a lot of them are kids. Um, Everyone knows that the first three Star Wars movies, which are actually the second three Star Wars movies, are bad, except no one told kids that. They like all that stuff. They like the animated stuff. And my 11-year-old son watched it with me last night, and he really enjoyed it. He's looking forward to it. And if your criteria is, does an 11-year-old boy or girl like it, then fine, I think, right? And by the way, this is Disney, so it's it's aimed at my kids in a lot of ways.
3: I think that's true, although I do think you look at Mandalorian and it is, it is aiming to be more self-consciously, I'm using like 500 air quotes around this, self-consciously adult in yep. a way that like The Last Jedi was not. You know, it is sort of aiming to be more in that Rogue One space where they tell slightly darker, and by darker I mean stories appropriate for 11 and 12 year olds, but maybe not for 4 and 5 year olds, like, yep. in sort of in that space, and like
2: Starts off with a saloon shootout, yeah. it's pretty cool.
3: Yeah, and they're playing in the western genre, and the mm-hmm. um, kind of the, the Kurosawa samurai type movie, like, that's, that's sort of their template they're playing off of, so on that level I can kind of appreciate it just on the level of, like, somebody who really respects the fundamentals of television, I, I don't think they, they quite Grasped them, but I'm excited to see where they go forward. That's wrong, I'm not excited. I will definitely keep watching though, because it's my job. It's
2: your yeah. yeah. You had some very meta commentary in your review <laughs> about you know, I kind of have to review this, even though I'm not excited about it, because people are going to want to search for it. On the other hand, I would search for it if I wasn't writing about it. So you went around and around and reviewed it. W- one thing, you know, you said it, it, it looks great, I think it does look great. To me, though, it still spells out there's a difference between even super high-end TV, um, Game of Thrones. Uh, this is very much sort of in the Game of Thrones. Look, we're going to do a big budget thing um, that's like a movie. It still doesn't look like a movie to me, both in some of the special effects look just a little bit cheaper and, and even some of the ways they've shot the scenes. It looks like they, they, they pinched a corner. I mean, you, you obviously know about this stuff. I'm just guessing. Um, and a lot of it just seemed sort of like a, like a really well-done cut scene in a video game. Yeah, like it looked good, but I there wasn't sort of a point to it, scene to scene.
3: I felt like the effects were about as good as I've seen on TV, and that Uh that obviously like it's that's always going to pale a little bit behind film because they don't have as long of a post-production process in TV, even for something like this. And I do Why is that?
2: I mean, they, again, this is not a surprise that they had to get this thing ready. They had a, at least a couple years. Why couldn't you say, we're going to spend the equivalent amount uh, on this over, and we're going to pace it out over how many episodes, and we're, it will look as good as a Star Wars movie?
3: Because the, f- to start it out with, there's so much more stuff, you know? Uh, basically, this is going to be, if it's all the episodes are around the length of the pilot, it's going to be 320 minutes long. Your standard Star Wars movie is somewhere between 100 and 140 minutes long. So that's like, that's over, you know, that, that, that's around three times... 2 to 3 times what you would be doing. So that like ramps up your post-production process considerably. The TV production process is set up in such a way that like having long post-production is, you know, not impossible, Game of Thrones certainly did, but is is difficult because the way that you monetize that content is like shoveling it in front of people as quickly as possible. That's changing slightly with streaming, but there's still an argument of like I think a lot about A show like The Handmaid's Tale is, you know, obviously a big budget. They spend a lot of money on that show. They do a lot of, like, post-production work on it. They still are generally, like, filming the season as they're airing the first few episodes, which is a very TV thing to do. So that's that's another sort of element of it is that there is that compressed timeline that is, like, sort of built into TV in a way that also affects shows like The Mandalorian where it's not actually impacted by it. It's a lot to do with, like, union contracts and stuff. Yeah,
2: I wonder how that will change when you're moving into an era where this stuff, in theory, can be watched whenever it shouldn't theoretically matter to Disney whether we watch it all through the end of this year or whether we discover it for the well, first time six months from now.
3: I think I think the big reason is nobody's quite sure how you're going to make money on this. Like, you're going to make money mm-hmm. on this service. How are you going to make money on The Mandalorian? Like, there's no way to ever measure that short of, like, eventually putting it out on Blu-ray, which would defeat the purpose of having Disney plus be the only place it's available. So if I spend $300 million on a star Wars movie, like then I put it in theaters, people like that's a one-to-one transaction. People give their money to a theater owner and the theater owner takes his or her cut. And then it gets, uh, it gets sort of filled his windows. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I can sell
2: out each time I show it in a different place. yeah Now that you can do the theme park, which Disney can also do here, but you are missing other opportunities to make money here. That that makes sense. Thank yeah. you for educating me, Emily. <laughs> Um Is there anything else that you've been able to click around in that's new on Disney Plus that impressed you?
3: I like the little show Forky asks a question. It's from Pixar. It stars Forky from Toy Story Four, and Forky is asking questions about things, and uh, they're very short. They're two and a half minutes long. But they're also very funny. It's got Tony Hale, who voiced Forky, as Forky, uh-huh. and then John Ratzenberger is in it as Ham, the piggy bank. And like those two are a very fun comedic duo. Uh, it opens with a very deep-voiced man saying in like a vaguely Brooklyn accent. Forky asks a question. Like it's all. It's all just like. Sort of bizarre, absurdist humor that that I would enjoy uh, because I am, as they say,
2: a teen. I will look for that. Speaking of people who had to dutifully write things, uh, they Disney Plus had uh, tech errors when they when they launched yesterday. I dutifully wrote that up basically shrugged my shoulders and said i don't know maybe it's going to be a big problem if it continues on the other hand if it if it doesn't no one's going to care did you have any problems being able to stream this stuff
3: i didn't until last night last night i was i was doing some cleaning and i was like i'm gonna put on some i was gonna put on ratatouille and i couldn't watch ratatouille because i was like it seems like people are having trouble with the stuff everybody's trying to watch so i'm gonna like go a little bit off the map and do like one of these pixar movies and um I had trouble last night. It kept stalling out and pausing. But all day yesterday, I was pretty much watching it all day at work, at my work computer. And, like, I didn't have any issues with it then. So... I do think that some of it is, you know, strength of network and strength of all that because my network at work is a little bit stronger than my one at home. But uh, yeah, I did finally have problems, but throughout the day I was I was pretty stable.
2: Yeah, we'll see. We we uh, we've been trained by Netflix primarily to expect you hit a button and it plays, and um, what's supposed to be very difficult I've been hearing for years and years is to do live streaming, basically sports, that that millions of people want to hit at the same time. Um, That's supposed to be a very difficult task. It seems like they've been able to do an okay job with it, but there haven't been huge audiences. Disney went out and spent two and a half, three billion dollars on a company called BamTech that does all this stuff, and in theory, that was all supposed to be resolved. Again, this might be a non-issue for the rest of the Disney Plus start, but people will be watching it carefully. I
3: get why they built this service, and I get that they began building it before they knew they were going to own Hulu, but, like, Hulu is a company that is really good at having, like, things that people want to watch, millions of people clicking at the same time, and it works because they've been doing it for over 10 years, and, like... I really do wonder how much the Hulu architecture might start to seep into Disney Plus, and I guess I guess vice versa. Like the two sort of streaming services are part of the same company. I, I I think it's more likely than not that that sort of Hulu will start to influence how Disney approaches its own service.
2: Maybe we will bring in someone who specializes in streaming technology to talk to us, but I I, I worry that everyone would switch off their, their <laughs> podcast players. Speaking of switching off, we're going to stop talking for a second. We're going to hear from a sponsor.
0: And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
2: We are back with Emily. And and also Zach Mack has been chiming in from the the production studio. Zach really wants to get on the, the mic for this one. He's been explaining to us what a Mandalorian is. If you want to get the full answer, you'll have to go to Zach's Insta account. Uh, Zach the Mac is that the right is that the right handle? Yeah, go go look it up. He's gonna have a tutorial for you. We're gonna move away from Disney. We're gonna talk about Apple. Rolled out last week. Underwhelming is a polite word for the review, the critical reviews uh, of of their new stuff. Is that fair?
3: Uh, yeah, I would say that they were expecting better, uh, especially from the morning show, which they're kind of making this effort to prop up. Like this is their big buzzy show with Jennifer Aniston, yep. Reese Witherspoon, Steve Carell. They're kind of making an effort to prop it up. I'm seeing like promotion of that on social media. They're really making an awards push for it. I would not be surprised They've if they- bought
2: two seasons of it. They're paying yeah. an enormous amount. They kind of have to act as if this is a giant hit, right?
3: Yeah, exactly. Like this is, this is a classic early streaming problem that people have is they spend a bunch of money to buy something that they think people want to see. And then if people don't want to see it, they like, are kind of stuck with it. Um, But I do like, I do expect them to get some Golden Globe nominations. I expect them to like get some notice for the morning show. It's, it's too, the stars are too big for them to not do that. But yeah, it certainly doesn't feel like it's seeped into the national conversation. I think in the way that even like, one of their other shows has.
2: Yeah, and they really, you know, they did a big New York City premiere, Black Carpet, Tim Cook with the talent. I mean, and that was, you know, the week of launch. They are, they are pretending, they are acting as if this is a giant critical hit, giant commercial hit. I haven't seen it yet. Um my sense of it is this is like an Aaron Sorkin show. Aaron Sorkin specializes in in talky dramas about people who make television. And I like all of those in their Sorkinness, but this one doesn't have Aaron Sorkin. What what's your sense well to give us your your capsule review.
3: Um it's a uh, sorry I I'm I'm trying to it's remember right. the morning show. Um <laughs> Let's keep that in. I didn't hate it like some critics I didn't think it was very good but I didn't hate it. I uh-huh. enjoyed watching it. I do I think you said it was bad. I I well like, like here's the thing. I can enjoy watching bad things, you know? Uh-huh. Like I had a fun time watching this bad thing. I was aware yeah. that like it was not very well done and it was not very well Constructed And it had a lot of problems. But something about its momentum just made me be like, yeah, I'm having an okay time watching this. Like, I've watched more episodes of it. Apple made all the episodes available to critics after they had gotten kind of savage reviews. And, like, the deeper you get into the season, the more it starts to resemble a television show. But... Those first few, and that's that's a that's a
2: TV show thing, right? They they start they they get better over time sometimes.
3: Yeah, that's often true. Like I do believe that every TV show gets a little bit better at being itself the longer it runs, and like that is true of even the shows I hate. That like I'm not a fan of Criminal Minds, but by season two, Criminal Minds was a better version of Criminal Minds than it was in season one. Like that's just you learn how to do a job a little bit better, but. Yeah, I, I at the same time, so much money was thrown at this, and there's so much prestige thrown at it, and literally the premise is just like some things happen at a morning show, and like, I don't know, you know, it's, it's simultaneously trying to tell a story about women's struggles in the workplace and the idea that Me Too may have gone too far, and like those two things, they're not diametrically opposed, but they feel like they live on different shows still on this show, and that... Worries me. They're sort of treating the big mystery of the season as what Steve Carell's character, who's who's embroiled in a Me Too style scandal, what he actually did. Like they're turning that into kind of like mystery box television, and it's a, it's like a it's like a dangerous thing to do in terms of like getting character. Just in raw storytelling terms of getting people to invest in your characters is like disguising this big thing and. I, I don't know. I enjoy watching it, as I said. Our new colleague at Vulture, Catherine Van uh, uh says that it slaps, but also that it's bad. And, like, I think that's true. It is It is very fun to watch. It is very bad. And, like... It's not even like it's fun to watch because it's bad. It's fun to watch because it's well-made and like yeah. nicely structured and stuck together, but also like it's so empty. It doesn't have any idea what it's trying to say, and it's just flailing all over the place, and none of the characters make any sense. I'm so conflicted about this show. Come back to me in a week. I may have put it on my top ten of the year list because that's just the kind <laughs> of person I am.
2: I will say that, you know, I was referencing all those Sorkin TV shows. Studio 60 is is a bad show. Yeah. It's, it's terrible. Aaron, it's Aaron Sorkin uh, treating Saturday Night Live with the import and intrigue, and there's little uh, as, as the West Wing. And no one has like a sense of humor about it, even though they say funny things. It's also not a funny show. And at one point, there's a little, like, I think a two part. Uh, episode a two episode plot in which they like have to go to Afghanistan to like save a hostage. It's it's not good. I enjoy it. So there's I, I understand what you mean about uh, being in, enjoying something that's not great. Right. Do you think it is intentional that Apple went out with a prestige show about media, knowing that a lot of media people are going to pay a lot of attention to it? It's about the TV business again, t- looking for TV promotion. Do you think that? that just happenstance that that's their best show or do you think this is the show they sort of wanted to bring out to people like you and me and James Poniewozik from the Times and other reviewers?
3: I think that they definitely saw sort of a benefit of we're going to do a big show about the media like Netflix launched with House of Cards. There's a reason they launched with House of Cards beyond that they had some big stars in it. Like politics is a thing that the media loves to talk about. So And there's
2: a media plot in there as yeah, well. Yeah.
3: So like I do think that's an element of it and also like faux sorkin for as much as i hate to admit this faux sorkin is like very hard to resist if you are a white person over 30 and like as a white person over 30 like i i feel that structure in my bones feel that that sort of dialogue rhythm in my bones and like yeah, I think that that is another thing. I've I've been telling people I feel like the morning show is aimed not necessarily at me and not necessarily at my boss, but at like my boss's boss, who's like, should we? You know, who make maybe hasn't watched it, but is like, you know, should we do something about this? This seems important. And like, listen, I, Jim Bankoff, <laughs> Jim
2: Bankoff, who is our CEO, does listen. So Jim. Emily is specifically recommending the morning show for you.
3: (laughs) I wonder, I wonder like, yeah, Jim Bankoff, like I wonder if he has seen like the ads for it and is like, "Hmm, that seems like a good show. Like, like the ads for it are selling you a good show in a way that like the actual show doesn't quite match up to. But, For people who don't have time to watch a lot of television, but do have time to see a lot of marketing just passively around them, the morning show seems important. And I think that's sort of what Apple's selling more than anything else, is that they are important.
2: So Apple has a handful of other shows. Uh, Again, they're going to be rolling out new stuff month by month, week by week. And I think in a year, I think their thinking is... That's when you can really judge us against an HBO or a Netflix. You can look at a year's worth of output and say, this is not something I like. Um, that said, with uh, the other handfuls of shows they've put out, is there anything that you're particularly interested in, excited by,
3: that you like? Um, I think Dickinson is a lot of fun. Um, uh, you know, people are sort of treating it as a teen soap and not
2: Explain, explain what it is, if you, if,
3: if you haven't seen it, Well, don't know about it. It is a show about teenage Emily Dickinson... And that's basically the plot. She's played by Haley Steinfeld. She's played... Uh, it's sort of the story of teenage Emily Dickinson like getting into scrapes and having a wild time and like... For as much it, it's as... It's set when? It's set in... I, I don't remember when Emily Dickinson lived, and it's been a while since I watched the screeners, and I haven't watched the rest of the it's season. It's set in olden times, 1800s, but then there's hip-hop, yeah. and, and 1800s, they do anachronistic yeah. stuff, right? Yeah, it's an anachronistic take on like the 1800s. Everybody sort of talks like a modern teen. It is sort of deliberately aimed at, again, like, you know, white people in their 30s. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's like, it is a lot of fun. And it is uh, they're one of those teen shows that like, I'm sure teens are enjoying, but like also has a lot of value and enjoyment for adults, especially if you were an English major. And John Mulaney plays Henry David Thoreau. And that is great casting.
2: Excellent. So you like that. And, and then too. let's let's pull back We've got Disney, we've got Apple, we've got more stuff coming. You said you're not surprised that these sort of fell flat at launch and that you think there's a limited number of great shows. I am thinking back to when Netflix launched House of Cards. I didn't like that show, but it, it seemed to do very well out of the gate. Uh, then they had Arrested Development, then they had Orange is the New Black, and for a while it seemed like, oh, doesn't look like making TV is that hard for a company that hasn't made TV, like Netflix. You just throw money at it, and you get some good stuff. I think we forget that Amazon was very underwhelming when they started doing original programming for a couple of years. Do you think this is just the trajectory of all these services now that you're going to stumble around no matter how much time money they've spent? It'll just take them a while to get something good.
3: Well, the thing that made Apple and Disney Plus different is they launched all their shows on day one. So we got to see the full breadth of it. Netflix like their first four shows we're not counting Lilyhammer which they acquired from Norway but like some people want to say that was Steve Van Zandt. Yeah, so people want to say that was the first Netflix original but they acquired it. So the first show that Netflix specifically bought to produce was House of Cards. I also was not a big fan of it but certainly like certainly like it gained traction at least with awards voters and yep. there were like dedicated viewers. Their next show was something called Hemlock Grove that nobody remembers that was terrible. It was a terrible, terrible show. Their next show was Arrested Development Season 4, which is, you know, has its fans, but was very divisive. Then their fourth show was Orange is the New Black, which was their big, I think, their best show of that first year, and also, like, their big breakout hit, like the one that crossed over into the mainstream in a way that they weren't expecting. Um, You look at Amazon's first four shows, they launched with these two shows called Alpha House and Betas, uh, which nobody remembers, and both of which were pretty mediocre. Then they do Transparent, which has its issues, but at the time was like deeply embraced as like radical revolutionary television. And then they do Mozart in the Jungle, which is pretty good. And like I enjoy that show, but also very niche. So you look at the first four shows of both of those companies, and they're kind of all over the place in the way that Apple Plus and Disney Plus's shows are. But... Yeah, it is, like, hard to make good TV. And I think the launch of House of Cards, which, again, both of us are, like, wasn't a very good show, but had the patina of being a good show. It it
2: looked and felt like an HBO show. I I thought Kevin Spacey doing Foghorn and Lighthorn was just just preposterous, but people liked it.
3: Yeah, and it's one of those things where... At the time, not a lot of networks were able to capture that feeling of watching HBO. So people were like, oh, Netflix has done it. But you go back and rewatch those episodes. And granted, you're helped by like the uh, Kevin Spacey, what we sort of found out about his behavior, that helps like sort of see through the veil of what that show is. But like, it's always been kind of cruddy television and like... Yeah, I, I just I look at these uh, new streaming services coming along, and there are from companies that know what they're doing, like uh, HBO or rather Warner Media and uh, NBC Universal. But it's hard to make good television. It's always been hard to make good television, and it's even harder to make great television. And I just think when I look at a lot of these these networks, that they're they're thinking that quantity equals quality and maybe it does like may i i you know you read all the time about how like for netflix the great victory is getting you to watch more content and like if you just keep producing more content a lot of people will just watch it, you know, because we use television almost as an appliance as much as we do a thing that we get our entertainment from. Like, like I said, I was watching stuff on Disney Plus last night while doing chores around the house, so in yeah, terms of that's that, the you know. Old,
2: the, old, the old model for TV, right, is it, it, it sort of sits with you in the morning, in the evening, uh, passively, like you sort of sit back and it, it brings stuff to you, that the idea of sort of flipping through the dials aimlessly, that's, that's a lot of what's on the traditional cable TV grid is stuff you're not very enthusiastic about, but it's there. You know, that's reruns of Friends, etc. Now in a world of Netflix world, a Disney Plus world, where you go and seek out a show, seems to me that that there's a different expectation. You you can sit and listen to this whole conversation we're having and saying, you guys are full of shit. Um, This stuff doesn't have to be high art. It can be entertaining. It can entertain my 11-year-old. But it still has to be something that you or me or my 11-year-old decides they want to watch as opposed to something that just pops on.
3: Right, and I think making great entertainment is harder than making great high art. Like, I think Mm -hmm. that high art, to a degree, if you have something you want to say through an artistic method and that something you want to say is interesting and provocative enough, like, it sort of doesn't matter the execution. If you're just, if your aim is to entertain people, the execution has to be spot on or people get dragged out of the story right away. like. To me, in some ways, it's harder to make Star Wars as good as it is than it is to make, like, a really interesting and provocative experimental film. That doesn't mean they're not both hard. It just means that, like, what Star Wars did, like, it's never been replicated for a reason.
2: Yeah, my version of that is all the, all the Die Hard replicas, diehard on a whatever, they're never as good as Die Hard because Die Hard's a genius movie. And you can rewatch it as many times as you want. It still holds up. Yeah. These are businesses. Um, in theory, these uh, streaming services want your money, although it's not— Quite certain that you're going to have to pay. Um, I don't have to pay for Disney Plus for a year because I'm a Verizon customer. Um, In theory, I'm going to supposed to pay five dollars for Apple. If you had to actually spend your money on either Apple or Disney, would you?
3: I'd probably get Disney Plus. I was on the fence about it. I do think the the bundle of Disney Plus and Hulu and ESPN Plus is a is a really good deal. I think like. If you are a Netflix subscriber who's increasingly concerned about, like, the programming that they're losing and you're looking at that bundle with, like, Envy, I think it it might be worth it. Like, I I think it – Hulu's TV catalog is deeper than anybody's TV catalog. Disney Plus has all the Disney stuff. And then, like, ESPN Plus is live sports. It's not, like, mainline ESPN, but you still get access to a lot of different – especially college events. So, to me that bundle's worth it i don't think i'd be paying for apple yet like but i'm also not an apple user i'm an android user so like i'm kind of i'm not someone who's in the apple fan club in the way that i think a lot of people are so um, i may not be the best person to be asking about that
2: and one other prediction question: A year from now, right when we've got all four of these services up and running, and Apple and Disney have had a year, do you think there's going to be sort of a clear winner among the four new entrants that we've got coming out? We'll have a Quibi discussion another day.
3: Well, it's obviously going to be Quibi. Um, no, uh, <laughs> I actually,
2: which I, I think is a Vox partner. I'm not sure. We have to, have to check. We're nodding. Okay. There are Quibi, a fine service that Vox <laughs> is working. We
3: love with. Quibi. Um, there are. 100 different factors here, but I'm just going to assume for now that we're just going to take the question of net neutrality, which I've talked about ad nauseum on other programs on other places on Vox, we're going to take that totally out of the equation and just pretend it doesn't exist. If that's the case, I think Disney Plus is really well positioned if net neutrality is something that is those rules are, are struck down in court, then you've got to look at something like Peacock or HBO Max, which is tied to an ISP. And will have this like sort of weird built in advantage, especially Peacock. The thing I like about Peacock uh, is that it's free. It sounds like it's going to be free for everybody. And you're probably gonna have to watch a bunch of ads. But like, I do think there is an appetite for free. And I think that that might end up being helpful. Like they're trying to reinvent broadcast television and that sounds ridiculous until you realize that the shows that are the most popular on Netflix all originated on broadcast television. So I think there's a lane for Peacock in a way there isn't for some of these other services.
2: I don't wanna step on your your net neutrality argument, but but I do think the reason Regardless of where the courts land, that it won't be an issue for Disney is the same reason that, that Netflix says, which used to complain about net neutrality all the time and now says we're done fighting about it, they have enough weight. That they can confidently assume that a because what you're th- what you're floating is the idea that a someone who owns pipes right a Comcast or an AT and T will will advantage their stuff and disadvantage someone else, which is certainly a possibility, but it's v- would be almost impossible for them to do that to Netflix now. And I think Disney can rightly assume that won't happen to them in part because they're already partners with those pipes. Yeah, uh, I think I, I
3: think Disney is is partnering with Verizon. I find that like very interesting in terms of like hedging their bets. I would be worried if I was Netflix because, again, a lot of the stuff that people go to them for is leaving the service and they're replacing it with things like Seinfeld that, like, we don't know. Right. We don't know how Seinfeld's, like, Seinfeld's been on Hulu for a while and Hulu is not as big as Netflix but is, like, pretty darn big and it does not appear to drive a significant section of their traffic so yeah I, I do like I, my, my concerns about Netflix stem slightly from net neutrality but also from like this whole confluence of things that's going to hit them in like 2021 that it's going to be interesting to see how they navigate through
2: that's what I'm in the business of covering um, Emily you're in the business of writing about TV you're excellent at it thank come you. back anytime come back often uh, Emily Vanderwerf is critic at large at Fox.com thank you
3: Emily thank you so much